I just had a flashback to a, to a wedding in Haiti that I got to participate in. Um, I don't know why I had this flashback other than when I was opening my Bible, there was this very, very short pause before I started to speak, and it reminded me of the moment when the pastor uh, that was the primary uh, on this wedding service, I, I, I helped with the, the vows and the ring and, and got to pray over the ring and prayed over the couple, but this man who was in charge of the whole thing was 45 minutes late to the wedding ceremony. And when he finally got up into the pulpit, this is totally wasting time that I should be using spending on my sermon. It has nothing to do with my sermon whatsoever. So just hang in there. He got up, knowing that he was as late as he was. I, I know my own heart. I would have been coming up there, quickly opening up everything and getting everything started. But he got up and he set his Bible and his whatever notes or that he had with him for the message or for the, uh, for the wedding service. And he in all, as we're all waiting for him to start, he's just very methodically just laying out everything, getting his notes all laid out. Awkward silence for another minute and a half after we'd waited for 45 minutes before he finally opened the word. Well, I am way too excited to open the word. So uh, how's that for an introduction? I, I was trying to come up with a bridge to that, Luke. I apologize. Um, I do want to say, uh, as uh, I encourage you to turn in your Bibles to first. Samuel chapter 14, that I am excited to be here. It's a joy to, to be back. It's a joy to, to get to preach in this sanctuary, in this worship space with God's people. Many of you uh, I've known for a while. Some of you I've known longer than uh, just even since you've been at this church. Um, but uh, I have, uh, by God's grace, uh, been blessed not just to get to come preach here occasionally, but to have a friend in Luke Hershey. Now, he doesn't know I'm going to say all this, but I'm going to say it anyway. Um, First Samuel is, is a book about the rightful king coming to the throne, but in order to get to the rightful king, you got to get through a bit of a mess. And along the way, we're introduced to some key people, including a man named Jonathan, who had a friend named David. Now, in this scenario, I think I'm the Jonathan, I'm the slightly older one, and he is my David, a man who I love as my very own soul, and I'm grateful for him. I'm grateful for his friendship. I'm grateful for the way that he has encouraged me over the last several years. I am grateful that even those of you who don't know it, what a blessing you have in your pastor. Um, I'm looking forward to and praising God for... Uh, the addition in this community of another pastor, and I'm looking forward to making him a friend that uh, will, by God's grace, feed my soul, because I'm selfish like that, uh, but I hope that I can reciprocate with Ethan as well. Uh, thank you for the opportunity again to come and proclaim God's word. We're, we're going to be looking at a passage that's right smack dab in the middle of 1 Samuel chapter, or in the middle of 1 Samuel. In this chapter, we're we're, we've already been introduced to Jonathan. Uh, he was a bit of a hero in the previous section. Uh, but leading up to that section was a bit of a mess. Saul, the king who's been, even by this point, already uh, rejected, that there's going to be a, a better king to come, a king who would be a man after God's own heart. A lot of debate about what that means. Um, my own conviction is that means that it's a man who is pursuing or who's been pursued by the heart of God. 
not a man who pursues the heart of God, even though there's a lot of debate. I'll uh, let you argue with Luke about that later, who doesn't even necessarily agree with me, so it doesn't matter. Um, but it'll be really funny to watch my friend scramble and try to defend a position he doesn't even necessarily hold. But here in 1 Samuel chapter 14, um, Saul, I believe, has kind of started to let the news sink in. He's starting to deal with the reality that God has rejected him as king, and I believe it takes him down some dark paths as we're about to see. This passage that is meant for us, we might be tempted to say, Saul, what a mess, and forget that Saul in a lot of ways, is a picture of us. So I want to encourage you to read with, the, with that kind of heart in place. As I read from 1 Samuel chapter 14, beginning in verse 24. And the men of Israel had been hard-pressed that day, though they're at war. So Saul had laid an oath on the people, saying, Cursed be the man who eats food until it is evening, and I am avenged on my enemies. So none of the people had tasted food. Now, when all the people came to the forest, behold, there was honey on the ground. And when the people entered the forest, behold, the honey was dropping. But no one put his hand to his mouth, for the people feared the oath. But Jonathan had not heard his father, father charge the people with the oath, so he put out the tip of the staff that was in his hand and dipped it in the honeycomb and put it, his hand to his mouth, and his eyes became bright. And when one of the People said, then one of the people said, Your father strictly charged the people with an oath, saying, Cursed be the man who eats food this day. And the, and the people were faint. Then Jonathan said, My father has troubled the land. See how my eyes have become bright because I tasted a little of this honey? How much better if the people had eaten freely today of the spoil of their enemies that they found. For now the defeat among the Philistines has not been great. They struck down the Philistines that day from Michmash to Ajalon, and the people were very faint. The people pounced on the spoil and took sheep and oxen, calves, and slaughtered them on the ground, and the people ate them with the blood. Then they told Saul, Behold, the people are sinning against the Lord by eating with the blood. And he said, You have dealt treacherously. Roll a great stone to me here. And Saul said, Disperse yourselves among the people and say to them, Let every man bring his ox or his sheep and slaughter them here and eat, and do not sin against the Lord by eating with the blood. So every one of the people brought his ox with him that night, and they slaughtered them there. And Saul built an altar to the Lord. It was the first altar that he had built to the Lord. Then Saul said, let us go down after the Philistines by night and plunder them until the morning light. Let us not leave a man of them. And they said, do whatever seems good to you. But the priest said, let us draw near to God here. And Saul inquired of God, shall I go down after the Philistines? Will you give them into the hand of Israel? But he did not answer him that day. And Saul said, Come here, all you leaders of the people, and know and see this sin has arisen today. For as the Lord lives, who saves Israel, though it be in Jonathan my son, he shall surely die. But there was not a man among all the people who answered him. Then he said to all Israel, You shall be on one side, and I and Jonathan my son shall be on the other. And the people said to Saul, Do what seems good to you. 
Therefore Saul said, O Lord God of Israel, why have you not answered your servant this day? If this guilt is in me or in Jonathan, my son, O Lord God of Israel, give Urim. But if this guilt is in your people Israel, give Thummim. And Jonathan and Saul were taken, but the people escaped. Then Saul said, cast the lot between me and my son Jonathan. And Jonathan was taken. Then Saul said to Jonathan, tell me what you've done. And Jonathan said, or told him, I tasted a little honey with the tip of the staff that was in my hand. Here I am. I will die. And Saul said, God, do so to me and more also. You shall surely die, Jonathan. Then the people said to Saul, shall Jonathan die? Who has worked this great salvation in Israel? Far from it. As the Lord lives, there shall not be one hair of his head fall to the ground, for he has worked with God this day. So the people ransomed Jonathan so that he did not die. Then Saul went up from pursuing the Philistines, and the Philistines went up to their own place. All right, let's pray. Father, your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light to our path. Would you light the way? Would you help us even see where our own hearts might go astray. And in this, Father, be glorified as you bring transforming grace to our hearts. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. I feel like I've confessed a lot of sins over the years whenever I come to preach here. I'll keep confessing. I may have already confessed this sin. I'm not entirely sure. But uh, my family likes to joke that I uh, have a problem. They like to joke I have a lot of problems, but one problem in particular. Um, they like to bring up as we're, if we're, anytime we're hanging out, if they see me get anxious or irritated in some way, they immediately will shout out, new rule. And then they'll pronounce some sort of a new rule over the family, really just mocking me because for years that was how I parented. Because there are pet peeves that I have. And maybe you have some too. Like when I was on my way here and the guy driving below the speed limit in the left lane, pet peeve. If I could, I would shout, new rule, get out of the left lane. You're only supposed to be in the right lane. But they would never hear me, so I hold that in. But when I'm at home and I walk into a kitchen with a cupboard open that smacks my knee because it wasn't closed properly, or a drawer open and it, and it snatches my hip and makes me cry out in pain, or if I see a Lego on the floor after I've stepped on it, I cry out, new rule. And I always made rules attached to money because that was the only way that spoke to my especially teen kids. Um, you owe me a dollar if, I see, if you leave the cabinet door open, if you leave your cup in the living room, if you, uh, if you leave a Lego. It's terrible. It's terrible, horrible, not the way you parent kind of behavior, but it was what I tended to do. I tended to make new rules. Well, here in 1 Samuel chapter 14, you can almost hear between the lines Saul cry, cry, crying out as he is witnessing the destruction of the Philistines and the, they, the enemy is at their feet and they are being beaten back. Saul cries out, new rule. Nobody eats until I have been avenged on all my enemies, it tells us in verse 24. In effect, he says, cursed be the man. 
So in effect, he's saying, may anyone who does not stay the course, finish what we started, end these enemies, may he go to hell. That's effectively what he's saying. Offering this new rule, of course, we know what happens. Jonathan is unaware of this new rule, this curse that Saul has put out there. And so he, as the passage tells us, dips his his staff in the honey in, his, in this forest that is literally dripping with it, brings it to his hand and into his mouth, and is encouraged only to learn that that's a violation of Saul's new rule. This moment where Saul is looking to maintain some kind of control and he brings a kind of legalism to bear. How do we walk this passage out in light of everything that we're, that, that, that's happening here in this story? I believe that the big idea, the big takeaway, the major thrust is what happens when a heart loses sight of the gospel. In Saul's defense, of course, Jesus has not yet come, but the, but the rhythms of the gospel have been very present since Genesis chapter 3. A promise of a rightful coming king who would eradicate sin and fix what is broken in our hearts and in this world. And, and so this man who should know, should understand God's grace is seeming to not have it at all. He's got an anti-gospel heart, a, go, a heart that goes in one of two directions. It can either go toward legalism or it can go toward licentiousness, toward legalism or, 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 or hedonism. And we're going to see both of those drawn out in this passage, but focusing on Saul as we think about this idea of legalism, this anti-gospel temptation that's in every heart. Sinclair Ferguson describes legalism as a heart distortion of the graciousness of God and the God of grace. Now we might think, and and we might even be able to think back to and be reminded of the Pharisees in the first century that Jesus talks about in that scripture reading that was read a few minutes ago from Matthew chapter 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. Woe to you, woe to you, woe to you, over and over again. And we would say, it's a good thing we're Christians and we never struggle with this. It's a good thing that we don't have legalism in our hearts. But Ferguson would go on to say at one point, it's commonplace to say that one can have a legalistic head and a legalistic heart, but it's also too possible to have an evangelical head, that is, to have all the right answers and to have a legalistic heart. So I want to encourage you to consider with me how we might root out the reality of legalism in each of our own hearts, even if we've got all the right answers in our heads. This morning, to do that, I want to look at Saul and consider three things about legalism. The first is how the anti-gospel heart's center of legalism is found, what it is that center, the folly of that legalism, and the cost of it. So first of all, let's look together at the anti-gospel center of legalism. When you think about legalism, if I were to give you another definition, a definition that would be something like an over focus on the law, maybe you could say that, and you might think, well, 
What's wrong with the law? The law is good. The law is about holiness. The law is about God and his character and his, and his desire for the way that we are to live. The law is perfect, reviving the soul even, we might say, in, uh, in quoting the Old Testament scriptures. But legalism is not really about the law. It's got a different center. The center of it isn't the law at all. The center of the legalistic heart, the anti-gospel legalistic heart, is me. I'm the center. This whole interchange, as you see in 1 Samuel chapter 14, is an interchange about Saul and about his comforts and his desires. As he says to the people, cursed be the man who eats food until it is evening, and I am avenged on not God's enemies, not the robbing of God's glory, but until I am avenged on my enemies. Almighty me. In fact, as you look at this passage, it's like really the first time it seems in, in, in any real significant way that Saul seems to care about religious things. I mean, his attempts earlier to force a sacrifice a little quickly that gets him into trouble. And, and, and other moments, they ultimately, though, they keep showing that Saul's not really about God. But here's this newfound religious fervor in Saul. We're going to make vows before the Lord, and we're going to stand by those vows, vows that he's failed to stand by in multiple occasions already in just his few, few short chapters of his kingship. But this man who is ready and willing to use religion now toward his own ends seems to be focused on obedience, but he's really focused on what obedience will give him. As we look this, at this passage and we think about this center, we notice how it plays out for Saul and it plays out maybe in our lives as well. You see, because legalism is about making rules, first of all, for self-protection or self-saving. See, Saul doesn't want to entrust himself to a God of mercy. Saul wants to hedge his bets. He wants to create an opportunity for his own comfort and his own righteousness to be upheld. He doesn't want to see God's mercy and God's salvation and God's protection, but make no mistake, he wants to be protected. In fact, if you go back to chapter 13, uh, in our church, uh, when we, we uh, another man in our church and I were talking about this, and he just thought it was, uh, he wondered if Saul was um, anxious anytime the thought of Samuel, Samuel would pop up because it seemed like every time Saul messed up, Samuel would pop up out of nowhere, like up out of the shadows. Aha, I got you. Now, I'm not exactly sure what was going on in the heart of my friend, but, but I'll admit that sometimes that's my heart. And I think the reason it's my heart and I think it's Saul's heart and maybe is my friend's heart sometimes as well is because we all feel like that at times, like this God's just waiting for us to mess up again. And he's ready to pounce. And so I think that's at work in Saul. I think that can be at work in us. And so what is Saul's approach to that? Well, he's going to double down. He's going to be extra careful. He's going to maybe do what, and I loved the confession. It kind of plays it out pretty beautifully, actually. 
maybe if I do a little more, try a little harder, obey a little better, then I'll have confidence to draw near. It's the attitude of our hearts as we approach God. If we've blown it, we double down, we focus more, we, we get more religious. Maybe he's thinking, I know I wasn't the man after God's own heart. I, I know I wasn't the man that God wanted, but maybe if I get this right now, God will change his mind and God will let me be the king. It's all about self-protection. And it's about self-glory. That little moment when he's saying, I want vengeance on my enemies has him so fixated on winning the victory that he loses sight of the cost of the way that it's actually harming the people. We slip into moralism and legalism, and as that first that Matthew chapter 23 passage tells us, it's all about glory. They want the best seats in the synagogues. They want to be known. The, the Pharisees wanted to be seen for their religiousness. They wanted to be seen for their righteousness. And I don't know about you, but I, but I certainly know in my own heart that when I'm called out on my sin, I realize how much self-glory is in play when I get very uncomfortable with that. And I start making my excuses. Well, I was tired. I was a little hungry. The person in front of me was going too slow in the left lane, so I sped a little to, to get back up. It's not my fault. It's, an, it's our way of trying to uphold some sense of of glory, of, of dignity, of, of our own righteousness, and to make sure that everyone else knows that we're good. Saul seems to be all about that. In fact, if you go to the very end of that same chapter, and there's a little bit of debate on exactly what's going on here, but I think it's, it's fair to say. It says, um, I didn't read this section, but at the end it says, there, there was hard fighting against the Philistines all the days of Saul, and when Saul saw any strong man or any valiant man, he attached him to himself. Now, no question, that's a wise move if you're in, if you're in a constant state of war. You, you, you try to find other people who are strong and competent and capable soldiers and warriors to stand with you in the fight so that you can win those battles. But I think that when you see Saul in the light that we see him in, you realize pretty quickly Saul's pursuit of glory might also be in place there. I know this temptation as a pastor. Every time there's a new shiny person at church, it seems like they're competent and they might be able to bring something to, to our community. It's so easy to want to attach myself to those people because it's going to make us look good. And on down the spiral it goes, and I've seen it over and over in every church I've served. I've seen the attempt to latch on to some valiant, strong capable, competent person, all so that we continue to look good because the center of legalism is me. Do you feel that in your own heart? Do you see that sense in you? Jen and I have a joke, my wife, Jen. Um, anytime it's, we're starting to make it all about us, we start to sing that, that old uh, contemporary Christian song, it's all about you, Jesus. You know that one? And we flip it. It's all about me. Uh, anyway, I'm not going to keep singing to you because that's horrifying. 
How do you tell you're building your righteousness uh, on yourself? Well, you keep being the center of the story. You'll keep referencing you. You'll keep defending you. You'll keep trying to confirm your worth. And that's because legalism's anti-gospel heart center is me. But legalism also has a folly to it, doesn't it? You've all experienced this. I mean, at times where you've got some particular sin pattern in your life or some certain area of your life where you struggle with self-control, perhaps it's in eating or an exercise, and, and, and you have those moments where you fall short, and what do you do? You find yourself um, trying to buckle down and trying harder, especially in dieting. I'm, I'm going to bypass that, that uh, extra piece of bread and then you bypass it. And then what happens? When the cake comes around, you can't help it. You must have. And it takes over your entire life. It ends up proving what is going on with legalism. It, it's, it, it has a folly to it because of what it actually does accomplish in you. First of all, I want to back up a little bit and I want to acknowledge, first of all, that the part of the folly is simply in the burden of it. Legalism puts burdens on people. You see this from the outset of this story. As it's happening, as, it, as, as Saul makes this curse, ex, extends this curse to his people, they're getting hungrier and hungrier. You see Jonathan in his hunger eating some of that honey and then immediately being rebuked for it. And what is Jonathan's response? My father has troubled the land. He says. And that's what legalism does. It, it squashes and it blankets and it, and, it, and it puts out any sense of joy in, in the journey ahead of us. If you read that entire Matthew 23 passage with the Pharisees in it, it I, I think you can summarize it in a handful of bullet points. These, uh, the, what the woes really do, what the, what the legalism and the scribes and the Pharisees and the teachers of the law would do, it would do several things. It would create doubt where God would offer assurance. That's just one of the burdens. It creates self-hatred when we can't live up to our own standard. It steals joy. It creates division between believers as we, as we draw lines in the sand and hold each other at arm's length each other, the each other that are going to be with each other in eternity. It, we hold each other at arm's length because we don't dress quite the same. We don't read the same versions of the Bible. We don't all attend the same gospel-believing church, so therefore we don't, we must not, be, that other person must not be in a gospel-believing church. And it impedes opportunities to love the hurting, that they neglect the weightier matters of the law, Jesus says. It's the funny thing about legalism, when our pursuit of morality ends up becoming immoral because it lacks the path of love and misses the weightier matters of the law, we see its folly, at least in part. But more than that, as I hinted a few moments ago with my dieting exploits over the years, it actually inflames what it seeks to destroy. You remember that in Romans chapter 7? When the law told me, do not covet, it produced in me all kinds of coveting. Isn't that true? When we buckle down and we try harder, we find ourselves 
all the more tempted. Sin becomes more attractive, not less. It's like the, the illustration of the, the drunk monk, which is maybe a weird juxtaposition of two thoughts, but the drunk monk who tries to get up on the donkey and emphasizes a little too much thrust with his leg and over it he goes and lands on the other side so he thinks I've got to get back up on and he's on the other side so he's got the other leg to push him up and he overemphasizes again these are the way that legalism and licentiousness get get used to and they just throw us right off the donkey repeatedly is that a weird analogy maybe maybe I shouldn't have put that one in my notes well did you watch the Olympics though Speed skating, and maybe this is a better analogy. In speed skating, it's always fascinating to watch speed skating. When they, they, the, the person would, these, with these just incredible physiques, physique I've never had, would, are able to take these, with these two powerful legs and whatever mo- upward motion they use, they push with their left leg and, they, and, and it sends them forward and they push with their right leg and they keep a balance, right? And they, and they push through. But then you have that, the, that picture that went around, and I don't think it was proven ever true, but where it looks like the, the Chinese ice, uh, uh, speed skater is throwing some sort of an object into the path of the Canadian skater, and it ends up, they end up falling and tripping and everything, and so everybody had this big, ah, the Chinese were trying to cheat the Canadians, um, and I don't know if any of that's true, but I think that that's what happens with legalism. It's like this thing that we chuck in our speed skating route as, this is another terrible analogy, but I want to consider it a little bit more. Just go, bear with me for just a moment more as I just apply this. The way that we get inflamed and we try to and, and, and our flesh ends up taking over when legalism and hedonism or licentiousness come to play. There's this guy named Danny Cho who talks about this, the perennial issue of doing quiet times. Do you ever struggle with yours? He says, you hear a sermon that good Christians do quiet times, so you determine to do it. There's some initial joy in actually doing quiet time. The behavior becomes even ritualistic. You're trying to be a faithful Christian, but the joy quickly wanes and is replaced by the physical rigor of keeping up with something. This is truth without grace, quiet times getting skipped a few times, a few weeks, maybe a few months even. During that time, your life becomes preoccupied with other things that always seem more important than fellowship with God, and you're following your own agenda, and God seems absent from the day-to-day living. Quiet time is soon replaced by many other priorities. One may slip into the wrong thinking, saying, well, God wants me to be free, have a good time, once saved, always saved, so I can skip my quiet time today. This is grace without truth. A few months pass. You hear another message on the importance of having personal worship, studying God's word, getting back into it, and you feel convicted, which is the Christian's way of saying that they feel guilty. And so back into the trap you go on the other side. But it's all folly. It's folly to approach our God like that. It's folly to approach his calling on our lives like that. Because eventually the, the reality sets in that we end up creating burdens. Burdens that we don't just keep to ourselves, we put them on everyone else. We make rules that everyone else has to follow so that our righteousness stays intact. Because if you're following the same set of rules I am, then I can know that I'm doing the right things. And then that feeds our desire toward 
fleshly ends, and before long, we're just doing our own little version of the Christian speed skating. Legalism proves to be a folly. Legalism certainly has that center, me, and it has its folly, but it also has its cost. Legalism has a gospel needing cost. This passage reveals to us that, especially in communities where legalism is ripe, that it tends to eat that community alive, doesn't it? Have you been in one like that? I know that this is, that's not the case here at All Souls, but I mean, obviously legalism can find pockets in every church, but you've been in a church like that, right? Where you feel chewed up, devoured. In fact, that's the way that Galatians chapter 5 puts it as Paul is challenging the people not to, to give in to the, the Judaizers and the legalism of his day. And in Galatians chapter 5, verses 15 to uh, verses, or verse 15, he says, but if, uh, let me back up, verse 13, for you were called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. There's the other side of that. But through love, serve one another, for the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. Paul's picking up that in that kind of setting, you will eat each other alive. And that's what's happening with Saul in this passage. Someone's going to have to pay when legalism is winning the day. In this case, we're about to find out it's Jonathan. Jonathan's going to have to deal with, the, with this foolish vow, this attempt at self-righteousness that his father has put out there. He's potentially going to have to pay with his life, as the passage tells us. He comes, it comes to the moment where they're trying to figure out who did it. And then you get the first of maybe just a few handful of places where you get any concept of how, the, how these two stones, the Urim and the Thummim, work. These two stones that are, that are in the vest pocket of the priest. And it's meant to help discern God's will somehow. In this case, maybe very simply, the two stones would be roughly the same size, and they reach into the pocket, and whichever stone they pull out tells them an answer. So they maybe, in effect, as Saul says, someone sinned. It wasn't me, because I've been doing it all right. So somebody in this room sinned, or in this crowd sinned. And so he starts to pull at uh, an answer, and so that's when he has the priest, because he's not getting an answer for why they aren't going to back to war. Why aren't they going to be able to finish this? There's silence from God, and he knows somebody has to pay for that. And so he, they reach in, and they were able to whittle it down up the people. That's not them. It's between Jonathan and Saul, and they pull out one more time, and the lot falls to Jonathan, so to speak. And he says, you shall surely die. Someone has to pay. That's the irony of this whole passage. This whole thing started with a curse, and everyone could see how costly it was. And everyone here in this moment, though, now are going to rise up, and they're going to say, you can't make Jonathan pay for this. Saul's initial curse and his rabid legalism and rash vow is about to cost Jonathan's life. Even Jonathan knew it. He's like, okay, I guess I'm supposed to die. 
Some commentators suggest maybe he was being a little sarcastic. Oh, now I've got to die? But I don't know. I, I, I tend to think Jonathan is resigned to the fact that his father's foolish vow was too much. But these cooler heads are about to prevail. They're going to say, no, we can't do this. We can't let this cost stand. So what do they do? They pay the ransom. Someone always has to pay. Someone always has to pay the ransom. In this case, we wonder who, to whom is this ransom to be paid? Who's going to pay for it? Jonathan has to pay for it or someone else has to. And to whom do they pay it? They know what maybe good Old Testament people might know and folks who've been through Leviticus would know that rash vows are covered in the book of Leviticus. What do you do when there's a rash vow? When the vow is realized to be a foolish one? It says in Leviticus chapter 5, verses 4 and 5, you make a sacrifice. You, they made a sacrifice so that the king's son could live. Today, as we enter into this, the, you know, the first moments of Holy Week, we acknowledge a king, a rightful king, a better king than Saul, a better king than David was coming. A king who wouldn't stand idly by, but would pay the ransom himself. A savior who didn't just stand in the way and argue for our good, but stood in the path of the wrath of God as his wrath was poured out for our sin, for our legalistic folly, for our rash vows, for our foolish attempts at self-saving and self-glorying. Jesus stood in the path and was killed for us. Well, we're going to celebrate at the table. At the cross, Jesus pays the ransom And so he invites us to, to own those legalistic tendencies, but not to just sit there and say, well, in that case, I can keep living however I want. But instead of just trying harder or buckling down, we start and are called to believe up. We're called to look up to the cross, called to look up to the righteous one who is slain in our behalf and who stands in glory and says to the Father, look at me, look at my righteousness, and they are whole. And when we look up and we believe up, placing our faith in Christ, in union with him, we can start to walk out that life, but without trying to do it in our own strength, without trying to think that it's going to somehow save us or give us glory. Because Jesus, the great and glorious Savior, says, you don't have to keep chasing for dignity and worth. You don't have to keep chasing for glory. I'll give it to you freely through my death, through my righteous life. And so he invites us to come. And we're going to go to a table here in a moment. Before we do, I just want to read a short uh, little section from Sinclair Ferguson's book, The Whole Christ, again. I, I was 
If you haven't noticed, I've been on a Sinclair Ferguson kick lately. So uh, you are recipients of that uh, one way or the other. But Ferguson talks about Luke chapter 15 and the story of the prodigal, which is really a story of the older brother Pharisees and the younger brothers who are trying to come back to the father after their own foolishness has led them away. The antinomian prodigal, he calls those people. The antinomian prodigal, he says, when awakened, was tempted to legalism. I will go and be a slave in my father's house and thus perhaps gain grace in his eyes. But he was bathed in the father's grace and set free to live as an obedient son. And Ferguson goes on and says, the legalistic older brother never tasted his father's grace. Because of his legalism, he had never been able to enjoy the privileges of his father's house. Between them stood the father offering grace to both without prior qualification in either. Had the older brother embraced his father, he would have found grace that would, have made, that would make every duty a delight and dissolve the hardness of his servile heart. Had that been the case, his own antinomian brother would surely have felt free to come out, of his, out to him as his father had done and say, isn't the grace we have been shown and given simply amazing? Let us forevermore live in obedience to every wish of our gracious Father. And arm in arm, they could have gone into the dance at the party, sons and brothers together, a glorious testimony to the Father's love. We could say the same for Saul, if only he had seen, if only he had tasted the Father's grace. And we could say the same for us. Let me pray for us and ask God to let that truth sink in. Father, thank you, for, uh, thank you for truth even when my own heart feels that I meandered a bit. Thank you for the grace of knowing that even in my own feelings of insecurity, I am nonetheless secure in you. Now as we prepare to come to the table, it's, it's our opportunity to once more come clean and once more own our foolishness, our folly, and our, our me-centeredness, but even more to embrace by faith the incredible gift of the one who paid that cost that should be ours to bear. Help us, we pray, to believe up. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.